Welcome to episode 49 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Today we're discussing the power of storytelling, and we're going to be focusing on brown and black storytelling in particular. And to help us understand how storytelling shapes, influences, and creates our worldview, we have Jeff Gomez, one of the world's leading experts in transmedia storytelling. In other words, multimedia platform storytelling. Jeff has helped build the stories of Avatar, Transformers, Spider-Man, video games like Halo, Splinter Cell, and brands that you and I know like Coca-Cola, Nike, and many more. And what's perfect for us to have this show right now, because we've touched upon storytelling a number of times throughout the last year on this podcast and the power of storytelling, but we're heading into the summer blockbuster season. We're heading into the season now where they're trying to get everybody back into theaters to tell them stories that are worth risking your life potentially or paying extra money to go see. So I think listening to Jeff is essential before you see any other movie, any other TV show or read even another book. You need to listen to this podcast. We discuss why we are all attracted to the dark stories of filmmaking, television shows, books, any type of literature whatsoever. Why do we like to consume it? Why are we so compelled to tell those stories? And we also try and find out what would Jeff say if he was in a Warner Brothers meeting or a Columbia Pictures meeting to try and convince them to greenlight a Latino story. Hey, Jeff, uh, pleasure yeah. to meet you. Uh, Same here. Had a, w- a chance to watch your TED Talk the other day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the oldie but goodie. <laughs> it's an oldie but goodie, man, but that uh, it has an incredible um, sort of story through line of why you got into this, you know, how you were exposed to darkness. You were exposed to light as well, but the darkness was the one that shaped you, interestingly enough, not the light. Jeff, to me, the most curious thing is this. Dark stories. Horror stories. Mm. Why do we tell ugly, dark stories? And why is it that those stories shape us more than the happy stories? Why? Oh, Jack, that's a wonderful a wonderful question um and here's why uh, and i've i've been at this a long time and um uh, and my practice uh, uh takes me around the world and across history and uh, and there is definitely an answer to your question and it's this the story was invented by human beings because we had to spend any time that that uh, that we weren't being pursued by predators uh, clinging to each other in in safety in caves up trees things like that right so when the young looked to the uh, elders there was curiosity in their face how do we how do we survive this <laughs> you know and there was no verbalization there was no language yet so the elders had to scrawl and um, and describe somehow what you're supposed to do. It is it is desire. How do we fulfill our desire to preserve our own lives? Well, here's what you need to do. See this. This is you. See this. This is the saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> and this is you suffering. <laughs> or, or or here's what to do. You know, th- this is a terrifying situation, but but uh, but you've got to get out of this not only alive, but you have to bring home the meat, you have to bring home the crop. Okay, um, so here's what to do. Story started out essentially as survival instruction. You know, 
they answered our questions. And the fundamental question is, how do I survive? And why is this happening? (laughs) Is it our responsibility to tell good stories today? Because everything is so damn dark, Jeff. Right. Yeah. Them, uh, uh, DC, can't have a Superman that's happy because we hate him. Well, Why if, do if we he's happy, he's going to die. Michael, he's starting with me already, I Michael. Know, I know, I know. Well, you know. <laughs> uh, listen, Jack, we're drawn to darkness and horror because there is this innate sense we're wired to think well how would i deal with this could i survive i need the instructions and this is in a dark way kind of instructing me but if you look at narratives that truly have transcended time and space they are aspirational Uh, they are positive they are heroic They are about um, uh, somehow sustaining ourselves, our families, and our community. Uh, Those are the franchises. Those are the big uh, blockbuster narratives. But I have to say, those, you know, aspirational stories are still cautionary tales. Wizard of Oz is a cautionary tale. Star Wars is a cautionary tale. You name a aspirational story, it's still a cautionary tale. And, and that leads me to a question I didn't know I was going to ask you, okay? <laughs> uh, and, and that quite, because of where Jack went, Jack just jumped the shark and he's like, okay, why are we doing this to ourselves as humans? My question is, I totally buy that the elders said, yes, you know, this is how we transfer information. I totally agree that story is the best way to teach. But seeing how things are today, the, the landscape we live in. And, and I have to give context to the world we're in now because if we're in a virtual reality, it's like, okay, this is, they, you know, they're writing some good shit now. So, so my question is, what do you think story says that our attraction to horror, our, our love of, of the dark side, our, our fascination with it, you know, and, and as Jack said so aptly, we're more influenced by that darkness. What do you think story is telling us about ourselves that we maybe are not listening to guys um you know the um that is the fundamental problem uh our our narratives um you know smacked us in the ass and smacked us on the wrist and and said if you don't you will die if if we don't then we our tribe will die because once the other tribe appeared over the hill. We didn't know the outcome of the the fact that we would now need to share resources. Are we going to negotiate this and and it be okay? Or is there going to be a conflict? Chances are we can't take that risk. So so we have to smack ourselves um, uh, instead of, of luring ourselves with aspiration, with positivity. The problem, Mike, is that um, uh, we're in uh, a situation now where there are no more tribes just uh, across the way or on the hill. We're all entangled with each other. We are all asserting our rightness on everybody else's wrongness uh, because of the interconnectivity that that we now find ourselves uh, enjoying, but also annoying each other with. So we're going to have to find new ways to tell stories. I believe that there is a transformation uh, occurring in narrative and in narrative modality. I do want to get to the narrative I think you're speaking about, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I want to just get back a little bit to the power of story, you sure. know, and, and just how influential it is and how much we take for granted. What, what it's teaching us about ourselves or, you know, what our perception is. You know, Jack and I have talked a lot about the importance of controlling our narratives as brown and black people. Uh, and, and I think you've heard a couple shows. So at, at the same time, there's the stories that we tell, there's the stories that we tell ourselves, there's the stories that we believe. Story is potentially the most powerful tool, not just of communication, but of influence that humans have at their disposal. And do they even realize that? People talk about the term negative self-talk and, you know, cast a spell. That's all words, story. 
Um, I'm so glad you raised that, Mike, because that is central to um, uh, the way I work and, and how I work, whether it's with um, uh, this uh, visionaries who create these blockbuster movies, uh, video game developers, or with, uh, with uh, troubled teens. And, and that is this, when, when we're young, there, there's so much more possibility, right? We're open to things. Our story is unwritten. The analogy I make is, uh, I remember the video game Missile Command where there was a trackball <laughs> and, and you got to, to wiggle it around and the, the cursor went all over the place and mm-hmm. you, you were free. Um, uh, as we get older, some goofballs dump sand into the trackball. <laughs> you know, they are our friends, they are our parents, they are authority figures. And they start making you believe that the narrative that is being asserted on you is right. And there is this innate need to be right. That is Mm -hmm. wired back to the Stone Age, right? You better be right or that saber-toothed tiger is going to eat you. Survival. Survival. So we need to be right. And what happens is we start asserting our rightness on ourselves. And, And that tumbles over on itself and tumbles over. We start to look for evidence that's where that bias comes in, Mike, that we've been talking about, this um, bias toward what it is that you already uh, believe. You're looking for proof that you're right, and you reinforce that to the point where sometimes when it is possible for you to become enlightened or when somebody presents actual facts to you, you deny them. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay on this path of, of rightness. That is a narrative that that becomes a manifold you you your experience is a manifold that drives you forward through life and closes down all of these other narrative paths uh this is what happens to people and they get stuck um uh in the great uh uh, stories of the past the classics um uh, the stories that have transcended uh, often it is about um a, a person opening up somehow getting jarred out of their sense of rightness uh, to to understand uh, the, the greater world, to, to understand new philosophies and new ways of being, new ways of doing things so that they can uh, they can triumph. For me, that was that was everything, Jack. It was it was a, a, a Puerto Rican kid on the streets of the city, who was only being told and being reinforced about negativity, about the fact that you need to meet violence with violence, the, the, the fact that um, you are Puerto Rican, so you really aren't as, as good as, as anyone else. You know, this is what was being communicated to me until Captain Kirk and Sherlock Holmes and uh, Gandalf and, and all of these science fiction and fantasy characters began to whisper to me otherwise. Jeff, you've talked about how the transformative powers of storytelling uh, you used in your own examples as a kid that we have to challenge our realities, which I thought was powerful because reality isn't supposed to be tinkered with. Reality is the holy grail of your imagination. It's real. But the fact that you have to challenge it, that's the part that I want you to elaborate a little bit more because you can use it for as a weapon, but you could use it also as a galvanizing tool to get you out of somewhere through motivation, through desire to be better. You were a child and your reality was dark and you use story to get out of that darkness. How did you use storytelling as a transformative tool for yourself and how should other people use it as well? To to go back a little further than my own lifespan, (laughs) um, uh, we have to remember that um, uh, once uh, media became mass and and stories became ubiquitous, they surrounded us, um, uh, we were exposed to them as masses but those stories were being told by a very few and a very elite uh, a group of people. So, so the bottom line is, 
you know, our reality um, is basically kind of formed at the whims of the, the people who are wealthiest, who are trying to maintain a certain status quo uh, across the whole world. Uh, where 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 I came in <laughs> is that I, I started to, you know, become uh, jarred by how all of that trickled down to uh, a kid living in the projects in the Lower East Side of, of New York City, and, um, and and started to grapple with the fact that um, these characters and, and storylines were were telling me that what was happening to me didn't have to be this way, right? And and I was helped a little bit because my first few years were spent in foster care um, in a tranquil, loving, warm uh, home in upstate New York. So I, I was there for a few years. I was a clever little kid. So when I got into the projects, when my mom took me back uh, and I got into the projects and I was surrounded by chaos and, and violence and... and um, and people who really, you know, kind of questioned <laughs> my existence. Um, I said, you know what? There's a different way. You know, I, I had experience, and that experience was reinforced when I started watching sitcoms where the mom and dad were nice, <laughs> 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 and the brothers and sisters loved each other, right? Um, where where people resolved their difficulties. By in having 30 a little minutes. chat in 30, in 30 minutes, minutes, everything was all right. And I thought, wait a minute, I remember that. <laughs> um, that's my experience. And and uh, and and my, these these kids sitting there watching Brady Bunch with me in the projects, they would punch me in the arm and go, uh, dude, that those people talk like you. <laughs> you know. There was always this sense that it didn't have to be the way that I was surrounded. And, and I sought evidence of that in story and got that evidence enough to realize that I was in a cage, a prison of reality, and that there was there had to be a way to get out uh, into, <laughs> I guess, the bigger prison on top of that prison, <laughs> because we all are in these these kind of cages of reality. We just need to be more nimble to to kind of escape them into the next level. Like the holodeck. <laughs> there you go. Like the holodeck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you, you bring up a couple of points that, that I think are very powerful. You know, I definitely had an unhappy childhood, even though I had the parents who were, you know, stayed together and middle class and all that. I was definitely the kid who like got picked on and beat up and, and teased and I was little and I was skinny. And so, you know, comic books, fantasy, science fiction, that was, yes, I'm going to go there. That's so, the panic room. Yeah, for all please, that was for, for sure, for sure. Absolutely. But um, I'm also curious now, the power of story, you know, we, we can talk on the show and we understand it. And people who are in the entertainment industry and writers, they understand it. But, Story, I think, is also not to get too political, but I think story is a tool. Narrative is a tool, uh, not only for oppression. I mean, the obvious, you know, you say a, a race of beings are less than another, but even to the point now where there's a complete false narrative, like you said, but people would like to cling to that there's some sort of election integrity issues. So they have all these laws they're passing to change, you know, to basically suppress voting and to basically, uh, you know, all these things that make protesting illegal, you know, 90 different bills. Uh, how much do you think story is being used and narrative is used uh, against us without us even realizing? And do, do you think those architects know exactly how powerful those stories are? Oh, they certainly do, Mike. So, Jack, before you mentioned that I, I gave a TED talk some years ago, it was it's like it was around 2010, 2011, where I gave that talk. Um, and, and toward the end of that talk, um, uh, I, I start talking about the fact that that story can can actually kind of pull us into an alternate reality um, and um, and we can tumble in there and get lost. Um, now, the, the backstory of that TED Talk was that one of my big concerns was that I was noticing 
a strategy that was uh, rising in Russia. Uh, a, a gentleman named Vladislav Serkov, who was from the advertising business in Russia, discovered kind of art form that was born in uh, in Paris, France. It was uh, uh, an avant-garde art form where you would go into the gallery and there would be um, all these neon signs and, and symbols and flashing lights and things like that that were designed to completely disorient you and fire contradictory uh, bits of information at you. And, and some of them were quite powerful. So, so they were extremely provocative. So that by the time you got out of that exhibit, uh, you had basically given up. <laughs> you didn't even try to understand what was hitting you uh, already. Do you see? Sensory so, overload. So, Sensory, it wasn't just sensory overload, it was, it, 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 it provoked anxiety, it provoked fear, it provoked disgust, it provoked um, of, of powerful emotions. So, so you weren't just exhausted because of your senses being overloaded, you were angry. Uh, and you didn't know who to be angry uh, toward. Was it yourself? Was it someone else? Was it the artist? You didn't know. So, so what happened was, now Serkov, he was a science fiction fan, Mike. <laughs> and and he, he said, I'm going to take this and I'm going to present it to uh, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin had a big problem. Russia was going broke. There, there was a, a, an economic downturn. The people weren't happy with his government. And the elections were coming up. There was a genuine uh, a concern about his holding on to power. Um, so Serkov said, listen, let's, um, uh, let's implement this on a national level. And here's what we're going to do. You're going to, in, in the morning, the, your, your government is going to make a statement. But in the afternoon, your government is going to completely contradict that statement. I mean, it's going to be obviously a contradiction. It isn't, oh, we made a mistake this morning you're going to say something entirely the opposite as fact. And then in the evening, you're going to say something else. Uh, and, and they activated this. And, and the, the subject matter that they tapped on was about things like the extremist Muslim problem in, in Russia, homosexuality, um, uh, you know, religion. Religion's good. Religion's bad. Religion is something we're investigating. You know, and, and so these signals are going out across because they have control of the media. They're going out across uh, the the uh, the entire country. And this is what happened, guys. At first, everyone said Vladimir Putin's a clown. This is so silly. But after a little while. <laughs> Because you're reading this in the newspaper, you're growling about it, but the guy sitting next to you on the train is saying, no, no, the, this is right, you know? So you're starting to fight with each other. Then these protest movements are, are starting to happen, pro and con, um, and, and, and they're clashing with each other. This went on for years, far longer than four years, guys. And ultimately, you know what happened? After more than four years, everyone said, you know what? I give up. I, I'm exhausted. You, you know what, Vlad, you're managing this. Just, just manage it. And that's it. And that's it. Am I saying that, that Donald Trump stole this, this strategy and applied it to the, the United States. No, I'm not. But I am saying that Steve Bannon was a big fan of Vladimir <laughs> Vladislav Serkov. <laughs> and, and so were a number of, uh, of, of organizations that worked in Russia and that had done uh, uh, work in Europe and, of course, now in the United States and so forth. A multilateral narrative, culture jamming. It is a, a strategy and, and a tactic 
that you are seeing all over the world going on right now with authoritarian regimes. Changing topics really quick. Why does Hollywood not like Latino stories anymore? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Like, did I wake up with the cooties one day and I the Latinos have cooties? I mean, <laughs> we're all three people of color here. Mike's stories are the number one stories right now. Black stories are the best stories to tell right now. But I, my Latino stories are cootie stories. Now, we're not going to tell your stories. No one wants our stories. What is it about the stories of the Mayans, the stories of the soldiers that fought in the, the Latino soldiers that fought in the American Revolutionary War? Why do these stories, why do people want to erase our stories? What the hell did we do to the story king that it hates us back? And that we're not allowed to tell stories on broadcast TV. We're not allowed to tell stories on feature-length films. We're not allowed to stories um, in television shows. I mean, what the hell is going on with Latino stories? It's rich, yet no one wants to hear them. Now, <laughs> Jack, you have brought this up a few times in previous episodes. I am going to answer it for you definitively. Listen. Latinos have to be responsible for, for getting their story out. And the reason why we are not is because we are a traumatized people. And our trauma is inherited from previous generations. Our trauma is inherited by colonization, by slavery. So the problem is that uh, the Latinos had a very interesting um, uh, response to this. It's unlike the, the way that Blacks have responded and others. And, and part of that may have to do with the fact that uh, uh, our, our skin is lighter colored and so forth. But there is this desire to pass, um, this desire to assimilate. Because I was one of the people responsible for attempting to bring Lucha Libre uh, uh, to American popular culture. Um, and, uh, and we did a study because that was a concern of mine. Would uh, American Latinos embrace these colorful superheroic characters? And what would need to be done to Lucha Libre to make it more, uh, you know, mass culture in North America? And, um, and what we learned in the studies that we undertook which um, we worked with Univision and a number of other uh, uh, companies, was that there was this lack of the ability to accept all Latinos and Hispanics into a single uh, umbrella, right? Um, uh, You've heard of the crab at the bottom of the barrel. Um, they, They pull one another down, you know, if I'm Puerto Rican and this Dominican is climbing out of the barrel, I'm going to pull that, that, that crab down. The Mexicans pulling my leg down, you see, and, and this is not going all up together. Then we're all staying down here. That, that is, that's it exactly. And there is not the perception that we are together. That's a, that's a big problem for us as Latinos. There isn't that perception. We are, broken into our subgroups, into our nationalities, rather than our uh, common Latino heritage and bond. So if most of us are scrambling to assimilate, and we're annoyed with each other because Puerto Ricans don't like Cubans, and Cubans don't get along with Brazilians, and, and, and so forth, then we have, uh, you know, we're not behaving en masse. We're not all standing up and demanding representation. And that is why we are a little bit ignored in uh, Hollywood. La Bamba worked. The Edward James almost Oscar-nominated movie Stand, by, uh, Stand, and, Stand Deliver, and Deliver sure. got an Oscar nomination. 
these stories worked. And if you deconstructed why they worked, you can't really find a reason for it outside of support from the white industry that wanted to do it. So it sounds to me like it's a it's an issue of persuasion. And you are a master storyteller. So what is the story? Hi, Ann Sarnoff. How you doing? It's uh, Jeff Gomez, Jack Rico, Mike Sargent. We're here at your office because we're here to persuade you to listen to, to, to green light more Latino stories. And we have a master storyteller here in Jeff Gomez. Jeff, <laughs> let it rip. What is the story that you would tell Ann Sarnoff or any executive that has green light superpowers of why they should tell more Latino stories? Well, um, look at how many of us there are, <laughs> you know, um, and um, and when you have the right performer, the right charisma, uh, the right role, we will all go see that uh, that movie. Right. So I will tell her, uh, check out this guy, Danny Ramirez, who's going to be the Falcon. That that Falcon that doesn't hinge on his Latino heritage. But boy, when you look at him, he is Latino and he's going to be awesome. And he has incredible charm and you can hear it in his voice. I heard him on your podcast and, and now I'm working on casting him in a, a project of mine. So and you me, better tell the him the reason is because you heard him on Brown and Black. He has nothing to do with Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I don't care about that. You were on Brown and Black. Damn straight. Uh, that's absolutely. Straight. Absolutely. I will. I will. I promise. No, you know that that's what it is. Uh, uh, the the aspirational quality uh, has to stop being the exception and simply simply has to start being there you know, present as, as uh, you know, these heroic figures or these figures who are important and pivotal to the plot without necessarily dealing drugs or, or uh, you know, doing all the things that you've or you guys have already talked about. We need to see um, our people in uh, uh, noble aspirational roles that aren't even necessarily about You know, if you study hard enough, <laughs> you're gonna do okay. You'll you'll get a decent job. <laughs> you know, that that time I feel is done. Now we got to put on the jetpack with the wings and 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 go out and be first responders. So now that we got that under control, thank you very much for that answer. I want to talk about creators. There's lived-in experiences, the ones we live, the ones, the experiential experience, you know, stories that we tell because we experienced it, right? Then there's the research stories. I don't know anything about your culture, but I'm going to research it. And guess what? I'm going to know more about it than you do. <laughs> oh. White creators telling Black stories. White creators telling Latino stories. Is it okay for someone of another culture like John Chu to direct in the Heights a Latino story or maybe have someone like Carlos Regada Estrada tell the story of an Asian story in Raya and the Last Dragon? Where do you lie on lived experiences and research experiences to tell that story of another culture? And don't leave out West Side Story directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you, Mike, for rounding that out. Michael, Jack is rolling out the greatest hits here. Hey, listen, we got to try it out on you, you know? <laughs> um, guys, um, you know, uh, the, the gentleman who did do uh, uh, Raya and the Last Dragon, his response was really, really uh, awesome. He basically said, we, we need to um, uh, tell inclusive stories. You know, we, we need to uh, be aware of, of the diversity of the world. Here's why. Because 
um, uh, it, it's it's we're living in science fiction right now, aren't we, Mike? Because we have global television networks. This is the first time in human history that that we have uh, a TV networks that broadcast to the entire planet. It was in the James Scott script twenty five years ago. <laughs> okay? Okay? Mike's science nice. fiction. Mike's nice. awesome yeah. science fiction story. Well, listen. Um, uh, uh, one of the rules to to maintaining those global television networks, at least for the time being, is that they have to uh, contribute money to regions around the world to promote um, uh, storytelling uh, uh, so that uh, those people's voices get integrated into the broadcast and into the content. Uh, and the other rule, which we are only now just learning, is that we have to tell stories uh, that they can identify with, that they can see themselves in, in, in terms of perspective, in terms of race presence, in terms of, of, of belief systems and, and things like that. So uh, as writers, as writers now writing um, uh, 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 stories that do need to appeal across all the world, and here's, here's an inside, uh, a little inside baseball, in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, there was a plot line that was dropped from the series. It was about a virus. Uh, in fact, the the, the storyline was supposed to be about a virus that was manufactured in South Asia and unleashed on the world by the villains, right? Well, didn't the Walt Disney Company learn a lesson there? <laughs> um, uh, that cost them millions of dollars to to excise from the show. You could, if you watch closely, mm -hmm. you can see vaccines in the background. You can mm -hmm. see uh, characters being cut away from and delivering crucial, critical lines with their faces not on screen. That's because they had to recut the whole series um, uh, because of this pandemic. And, and now the Walt Disney Company is going to be very, very careful about telling global stories that can in infer blame on, on a race of people for something diabolical. Those right? damn Americans. <laughs> All they want to make us are villains. <laughs> so as writers, as, as storytellers, we are obliged to, to, um, uh, to work harder to insert ourselves into the lives of, of the people that populate our stories. And, and, um, and, and so, uh, you know, is it better for someone uh, of the same race, uh, you know, to, to tell a story of that race? Sure, we, we, we should promote that. It, it hasn't really been done ever <laughs> in, in, in mass culture. Um, so let's do more of that and, and, and so forth. However, um, I, I would like um, uh, to to um, uh, allow for the possibility that a white writer or or an Asian writer uh, uh, can can uh, you know immerse themselves in the cultures that they're writing about and uh, and perhaps gain some insight. Um, you know, um, in, in the writing that I'm doing, uh, uh, you know, in in recent months. There are Native Americans in, in my story. They're prominent. Uh, I'm not Native American. I'm, I, I have a little Taino in my blood from Puerto Rico. But um, what am I going to do? I'm going to call some Native Americans. You know, I'm going to make sure they're in the writer's room. I'm going to make sure that um, uh, that I'm talking to the, the, the people that I'm writing about um, and with empathy and sympathy and, and, um, uh, and to shut up. And, and let them communicate to me so that their words, their language find their way into the, the work so that when they look at it and they can say, all right, you know, not bad, you know, he kind of got it and, and so forth. This is, you know, this is yeah. uh, my, at least my current philosophy. Maybe I'm a little old. <laughs> no, but, it's a great philosophy, is, uh, Jeff. It's a know. great philosophy, you know, and in terms of, of understanding why, another person of another culture should tell your story or have the right to tell your story really is rooted in curiosity, right? They, right. They're curious about your culture and they want to know more. <laughs> and it's usually a positive one. My issue is, let's say I have a son who wants to be a filmmaker. 
and he sees that Pete Doctor just won a Academy Award for Soul, and it was a white guy telling a black story. He's not. He's gonna be like, oh, so my my only chance is to be in a in a room as a consultant, while a white guy tells my story, because I'll never be able to know what that feels like. And that's the problem that ultimately rubs me the wrong way. And hopefully, with persuasion and really great stories. Uh, we can persuade people to understand that we have beautiful, rich, cultural, diverse, overly powering stories the, the, that, that can land the test of time. And so hopefully that happens. Jack, absolutely. And, and, um, and the fact of the matter is that's only going to happen if we, if we keep our voices up. Yes. If we keep pushing, if, if podcasts like this keep on chugging along. Um, uh, you know, and 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 I do believe that we're seeing little signs that that there is something afoot. Blue Beetle, there's sure. the Brothers Garcia that are coming up. The Transformers is going to have Anthony Ramos and Angel Manuel right. Soto uh, directing. Right. So yes, and hopefully by 2022 we could see maybe the fruit of all of that. Mike, I love what you're saying, Jeff, and it brings me back to uh, seeing your perspective, and I can embrace it from the perspective of being an artist, you know, uh, you probably know, I, you know, I went to Parsons and I was an illustrator and painted and drew and everything. Uh, and there are many white artists who love drawing people of color, painting people of color, you know, and, and love what they see. And, and what you're suggesting, uh, the idea that let's say a master storyteller like Steven Spielberg wants to be able to tell a story about a culture he has come to respect he has come to learn about. And that whole idea, you know, cultural respect, curiosity, like Jack said, versus, you know, cultural appropriation or, you know, for it to be successful, Jack was suggesting what I would call cultural validation, you know, where where the dominant culture has to validate it for it to be good. So that that's a reality, I think, in, you know, a capitalist society. That's just a reality. It's show business, not show art. But my, I guess my question to you is going, going forward, um, that suggestion of embracing each culture, because right now we definitely live in the, you know, cultural pride each equals cultural prejudice as opposed to like, well, my food's great, but you know what? Wow, that Peruvian chicken is like the best chicken, I've, you know, whatever. So you get uh, me hungry, Mike. <laughs> exactly. So my question is that embracing of all cultures, uh, that respect, curiosity, you know, really just loving what it is to be human, realizing, wow, they're all, all these humans. do They're just like me, but they do these things different. How much of that ties into the collective journey? And, and explain that a little bit, because I feel that that's, you, you know, you've been uh, science fiction writers specifically to me predict the future because they have to understand humans to write about them. This is the 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 work in in collective journey. This observation that I'm making about how story has changed. Um, it, it's really it, it may be the, the most important. Uh, uh, work that that I've done. Everyone calls me, oh, Mr. Transmedia Storyteller, and, and so forth. And that's that's cool because there's that nerdy story world uh, universe thing that that uh, I get to work on. We were um, trying to understand how the internet and the interconnectivity of people were helping to promote or foment um, a spontaneous movements around the world. Um, I was fascinated with it because, and, and, and in, in a way I was a little optimistic because I was seeing how things like Facebook, social media were, were allowing for people to raise their voices collectively to push back at um, corruption, push back at extremist thinking, Push back at war. Um, uh, uh, you saw that that kind of uh, uh, freedom wave cross uh, the the former Soviet Union, which led to the breaking of the Soviet bloc, the the Arab Spring. What is the notion of of these people spontaneously coming together without a leader necessarily, um, and still having this this happen? Uh, so I began to study how spontaneous self-organized social systems operate and learned that they operate 
with a narrative, but that narrative is very different from the um, uh, young white dude who gets the call to adventure, refuses the call, then something kind of crappy happens. And so he, he needs to take on a mentor and then the mentor trains him and he goes out into the world, uh, uh, fights the villain, kills the villain, gets the treasure, brings it home, and we all can enjoy the force, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever treasure uh, is at the end of the movie. So that's different from the way these, these people have been um, uh, creating these movements. What is that? So for centuries, every agency, company, studio, and writer has relied on the hero's journey as a standard for storytelling. But this non-linear trans-platform communication is disrupting that, that model. So to rising generations, these standard tropes of classic storytelling, they're, they're feeling a little gummy, a little Hollywood, a, a little obvious and dated. We yearn for a new, uh, uh, more dynamic approach that, that, that feels inclusive. Collective journey storytelling is something that I, I discovered in indigenous cultures hmm. uh, around the world in, in the earlier history of, of humanity. Um, in, in, in these early uh, uh, cultures, this um, uh, uh, signs and symbols and, um, and the ability to cross-talk with each other um, were so important. Um, it, they didn't necessitate a beginning, middle, and end because the people were floating in an ongoing, forward-moving uh, narrative. And, and so just the state of being and, and interlocking of, of people allowed for the story to continue to unfold. I believe we're seeing this on a massive scale across entire uh, populations. Uh, the difference between hero's journey and collective journey. Hero's journey is like a circle, just like the circle of life or the circle of uh, being born in a cave, leaving the cave, going on your adventure, bringing the stuff back to the cave, right? To, to feed the family or what have you. Um, the collective journey um, is, is more like a system, like a, a star system or, or a gem with all these different facets. And, and those different facets are the characters in your story. Those characters, um, uh, you know, are trying to survive, but some of those characters are doing certain things that are extremely selfish because there's rivalry within these systems. That selfishness is creating some kind of damage to the system. And if it's allowed to continue in these stories, and you see this in Orange is the New Black, you see this in the Game of Thrones, if, if they keep at it, uh, those certain factions, the system is going to start to, to break. And ultimately, it could be self-terminating, right? Winter is coming. Then your story is about all these different people who are fully realized characters, not good and evil, but all the, the, the range in between, different perspectives, different deep, based on their own experiences and lives, they're, they're starting to communicate with each other and realize that there's a big problem here. So um, uh, they then come into conflict um, uh, from all these different perspectives, and ultimately uh, they need to uh, to uh, to resolve the, the conflict, not by asserting my right on your wrong, but by finding a, a third solution. It, it, it's not entirely mine. It's not entirely yours. There's something else happening. And then once that solution is applied and, and works more or less, we then need to reconcile because we've harmed one another. You've harmed me. Right. So just because we fixed the, the problem doesn't mean that I'm not still injured, that this can't just happen all over again. So we have to reconcile. That's the big new piece of storytelling that I think is vital um, uh, for uh, future uh, uh, popular narrative.
Jeff, in the news recently, there was talk of a Dominican professor by the name of Daniel Padilla who questioned the classics, uh, the Greek and Roman Catholics that gave way to white supremacy in America. Stories we tell, mythologies that we tell. What is it about American mythology that has been so defining on the world and so lasting? What is a, that story that has overcome Asian stories and uh, Russian stories and almost any, we are the de facto story of the world. White is the white default color of the world, American white. What is it about the story that we've told, this ideology of America that everyone's bought into? <laughs> hey, look, um, you know, there, there are, underlying fundamental values that human beings around the world have always embraced, right? We want to feel free. We want to be able to assert our will. Um, we, we want love and family and, uh, and plenty. We, we want all those things. Everyone in the world wants those things. What, what happened was that wealth and technology combined mm -hmm. in America uh, uh, first here in, on the East Coast, but ultimately in Los Angeles, <laughs> to, to turn into Hollywood. And, and uh, that wealth and technology figured out how to tell a damn good story. So what they're going to do is take those, that value system and, um, and, and wrap it up in this nice Caucasian bow. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who's out there? They're not even thinking uh, about uh, representation or diversity or anything like that. It's, it's just what it was, right? So, and then they learned how to export it to the entire world. So the, the planet had a language that everybody was familiar with. It was Hollywood. And that infiltrates. It, it doesn't um, it invade and colonize. It infiltrates because it's aspirational because it's kind of happy, because those effects are awesome, right? Uh, whether it's Wizard of Oz or Star Wars, that's pretty amazing shit. So that's why uh, it, it is the way it is today. But it is changing, Jack. It is, something is happening. People are getting pretty good at storytelling elsewhere in the world. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've checked it out, and, and, um, and what's really interesting and, and I'm a little bit involved in this, is that they're talking to me, right? So if, if, if filmmakers from other countries are talking to Jeff Gomez, because I'm Mr. Transmedia, about what it would take to bring their intellectual property and proliferate it worldwide with that Hollywood magic, but somehow hold on to this fundamental identity of the brand, the narrative, right? Um, uh, is that possible? And to Ultraman, uh, who I'm, I'm representing here in the United States, a Japanese uh, uh, superhero Ultraman. property. I used so to watch awesome. it in Colombia when I was a kid. I watched it in Puerto Rico. Ah! <laughs> Ultraman. Ultraman. <laughs> <laughs> right? I love that stuff, man. And, and so here I am helping uh, the, the Japanese, not just to uh, whitewash Ultraman and, and turn him into the, the, the latest Pacific Rim or Transformers, but to maintain the underlying philosophy, the Japanese wisdom. What is Ultraman to the Japanese? He's their Superman. So, so Ultraman embodied the aspirations of Japanese people including the philosophical aspirations of, of the Japanese people. Um, uh, uh, this includes, uh, for example, rising above um, uh, petty human squabbles and, and showing the world how, how to behave stoically so that um, uh, the, the major problems that Japan was experiencing could be addressed right? It's egotism. It's, um, it's, uh, uh, the, it, it's modernization, which had led to things like pollution. Uh, a lot of the monsters in Ultraman were born of, of, of pollutants and things like that. Well, you know, so, so that, that it's, it's telling those stories, can we preserve the Japanese-ness, the Asian qualities of Ultraman, and yet have it proliferate in American popular culture? The answer is yes, and it's happening. 
So let's do that elsewhere and let's let's keep at that so that it, it isn't a cultural appropriation. It's, hey, let's let's look at this and celebrate this and throw a couple of hundred million bucks at it <laughs> so that it's awesome, uh, but it belongs to them. And that's where I, I see joy and that's where I see possibility in collective journey narrative. I do have a question for Mr. Transmedia about the Caucasian bow. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so, so no, my question uh, is... Is it a white um, bow? Is it, is it a white bow? Is it silky? No, but my question is, um, movie like Tenant clearly did not work. And there are a number of franchises that had books, that had series, that had, le- but they don't work. W- what do you think is the biggest problem? What is the surefire way for a franchise to fail? Now, of course, there are all kinds of circumstances that go into it, but what's the Achilles heel of the Hollywood blockbuster franchise? You are so right, Michael. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and um, and what's it, it's really interesting. I, I'm going to name a few names here. Um, uh, the the numbers for the uh, the the recent spate of Warner Brothers uh, projects uh, were released. I think this morning, and um, and they're not good. You know, the these big blockbusters which went straight to HBO Max. Um, and, and were also released in theaters at the same time, uh, did not score well. And what's, what's worse, um, the response on the part of the audience is, is very lukewarm to cool. Uh, in other words, these stories are, are, are not successful. Um, uh, they're, they're not uh, a generating fan ardor, you know, a, a true warm fandom where you make YouTube videos out of them and talk about them for days and days and wonder about what's going to happen next. Uh, uh, it's, it, that's not happening here. Why? Um, uh, I believe that there is a mentality in, in Hollywood that is dating itself. And that is that if you put enough flashing lights and special effects and so forth, that you don't have to consider the underlying narrative logic you, you, you don't have to worry about how this story is holding together or the integrity of this character and what this character stands for and, and what the story world stands for. This is why you're seeing Warner Brothers with these DC Universe uh, uh, movies. They're just hurling all kinds of concepts against the wall. Uh, they completely uh, contradict one another, one right after another. Uh, characters behave in diametrically uh, uh, oppositional ways to, to Jeff, one another. these are professional screenwriters, people <laughs> who graduated from storytelling, and they can't tell a good story? <laughs> um Look, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they can't. They can't. And here's why. Um, uh, because we are, uh, this is an old-fashioned term, but we're making Xerox copies of Xerox copies of Xerox copies. We are indulging our whims, and we are engaging in kitchen sink fantasy, uh, uh, tossing, mm. tossing any con- bunch of concepts together, and throwing it into the sink, and, and that's the soup that we, we come up with. And, um, and, and so we're not thinking through the cause and effect. And look, that used to, everyone got away with that in the old days. But now you, you have this savviness, even among common fans. Um, you, you have these videos that are going, wait a minute, Wonder Woman 1984 just didn't make a lick of sense, and here's why. Boom, boom. Um, and then beat by beat by beat, they just destroy uh, uh, this movie. You know, we didn't use, have those resources. We didn't have that. That it was a couple of critics who said it's good, it sucks. You know, that's it. Now, it, it actually can generate animosity uh, against the film. 
Yeah, we get know. a full dissection to its cellular molecular level of why yeah. it went wrong, which also says that we're also getting smarter with all these explainers, with YouTube, with people being more vocal. There's more education, more knowledge being shared. And that sharing economy has allowed us to go, hey, you can't get away with just putting visual effects and a 20 minute fight scene that I'm not going to notice that doesn't push the story forward. That's right. right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so you could have uh, uh, Star Wars seven, eight, and nine, and, and and the experience of each individual movie is kind of awesome, and you're overwhelmed with the special effects and so forth. You could even leave the theater going, "Hey, not bad." <laughs> um, and, and then once you think about it. <laughs> A little bit. These movies are completely disjointed, um, and, and so forth. So the answer uh, again happens. I, I don't want to harp, but but collective journey narrative requires uh, not just attention to these individual chapters or these individual stories, but the notion of the greater context for these stories. Um, uh, we have returned to epic storytelling, right? Uh, so much of what we're watching are these 10-hour movies, right, on, on Netflix and, and Disney Plus or, or, or these uh, multi-sequeled uh, uh, blockbuster franchises. Well, that requires a new kind of storytelling. It requires narrative design. It requires somebody to, to, to stand behind the screenwriter and go, here is the master blueprint you know, I'm. Uh, you may be the writer for this chapter of the Odyssey, but I am Homer. <laughs> you know, and I have the vision for for how the grand plan uh, kind of works. It's not just that, though, Jack. You also need to understand that story operates entirely differently today because story is nothing now without the audience. So we need to make sure that there are gaps in the story, that, there are, 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 that the story stands up to scrutiny, that questions are raised that the audience is going to try and answer before the next chapter of the story. Um, uh, the story now coexists with the audience, not separately from, but intrinsic to the, 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 the audience's conversation with it. And even greater than that, popular culture's interaction and response to that narrative. If you don't have all those things locked down, your $200 million is just going to go right into the breeze. And that was Tenet. <laughs> and, and that was um, Wonder Woman 1984. John and Carter of Mars. Okay. John Carter of Mars. There you go. Yes. Here's the, uh, the added question to what you just said. Why do we have transmedia is about multimedia storytelling, correct? Sure. And we tell stories in different formats. And my question is, why do we have to customize the language of story for the platform that it's in? Why can't one story fit in all formats? Well, uh, my, my favorite response to that question, Jack, is Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> plop, huh? plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, <laughs> what a relief it is, right? You, that, you, you got the commercial. You got the newsprint ad that said plop, plop, fizz, fizz over and really, you know. Uh, uh, so uh, you can have that if you want somebody to drill uh, a, a, a single individual concept into your brain, right? Um, uh, that's what advertising's all about. Um, uh, and that's what, um, what story used to be about in, in the vein of Hollywood. There was the primacy of the motion picture, the feature film. And then it just got repeated. You saw it on TV. You read the novelization. You played the video game adaptation of that mm. movie, which sucked, right? Mm. It always sucked. <laughs> um, uh, and that was, uh, that was it. Um, uh, we now have so much choice, Jack. So, so much choice. We don't have to hear the same damn story again. If we love something, if we love a universe, a story, if we love those characters, we want to know, what else is going on? What, we, uh, you know, let's explore this universe. I want to go back there and experience something different, something awesome, something cool. Maybe that's going to be the video game experience. Maybe that's going to be 
the the uh, the audio drama, right? If the if it's the audio drama, I can get into these characters' heads and and understand subjectively what's happening to them. Uh, it, it could even be the same story, but I'm going to hear it in a different way and get new insights into these characters and so forth, right? Because we're leaning into the strengths of the medium, the strengths of the medium. If you're reading a novel, you know, the only time that uh, uh, Godzilla versus Kong <laughs> made any sense at all was in the novelization <laughs> of that, that movie. Um, uh, because the writer had, you know, not just access to the uncut script, but the writer had to figure out how to make anything <laughs> make sense uh, from, from that movie. And, and that's where you can enjoy that. So you're leaning into the strength of the medium in order to to make that work. Does that make sense to you? Yep, absolutely. There you go. Jeff, I mean, I don't know what to say, man. This was such a great conversation. I wish it could go on for another hour. Yeah, well, we uh, got to have you come back. back we'll have you point. come back yeah, again. We're, we're yeah. going to have to talk to you again yep. at some point, man. Definitely, definitely. This, is, definitely. Uh, this was good, man. That's it for this 49th episode of Brown and Black. We'd like to thank Jeff Gomez for coming on the show. And if you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Tirado, and you can follow our comments and opinions at Brown and Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll talk to you next time on another episode of Brown and Black. to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.